Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. Renaissance man, master storyteller, troubadour. This week's guest is the one and only Colin Hay. Scotland-born, Australia-raised, Colin's best known as the chief songwriter, lead singer and guitarist of the 80s band Men at Work. Their first album, Business as Usual, spent 15 weeks at number one on the US Billboard chart and delivered the band the Best New Artist Grammy Award in 1982, beating out The Human League and Stray Cats. Since that time, Collins released 13 solo albums and has toured the globe countless times performing his intimate live solo shows, which are in fact the stuff of legend. In more recent times, Collins toured internationally with Ringo Starr and his all-star band, and he even wrote the title track for Ringo's most recent album, What's My Name. Collins' dry wit, that visceral voice and songwriting that puts him in rarefied air with the very best. As a film, TV and theatre actor, Collins also racked up some impressive credits. The Craig, Cozzy, Jack Irish, Scrubs, The Resident and The Larry Sanders Show and many more. It was a real privilege to spend an hour in conversation with this bloke and we even get to play a few of his tunes. Please welcome to the blank canvas, Colin Hay. Colin James, hey, welcome to the Blank Canvas. Thank you very much. Very nice to be with you. Lovely to see. How you. is the weather there in Fair Sydney at the moment? Is it is it delightful or? Yeah, beautiful spring weather. It's probably about twenty five. A um, little bit humid, but just gorgeous. Very happy to be here. And Sydney misses you. Oh, really? You think so? <laughs> yeah, I, I reckon. Well, you wrote, you know, the iconic Aussie song of probably of all time. So I think it does miss you. Yeah, it's it's um it's interesting that song because it, it's hung in for a long time. It lives inside me, you know. That song, it's just it's always with me. And um, you play it in somewhere like uh, La Paz in Bolivia, and they love it as well. And you think to yourself, wow, it's interesting. It's um people kind of like it no matter where they're from. I think they just pick up on the fact that it's ultimately about some kind of form of celebration. However, you see that. That's right, mate. I think. What you just said resonates with me. It lives inside you. It lives inside all of us. I think every single Australian and millions of people around the world have that moment when they first heard it or it first sort of resonated to their core. For me, it was literally on a bus traveling from the north side of Sydney to the south side of Sydney. I was on Military Road, Mossman. I can recognize the traffic lights, the shops, the sky, the bus, what seat I was on, I know every single facet and perception of that moment where I was singing on a bus, all at the top of our lungs, singing that song when Australia won the America's Cup. And it's just like, so it's, uh, yeah, it's in our DNA. So thank you for that. (laughs) Oh, my pleasure. My absolute pleasure. Incredible time. Anyway, we've jumped to one of the, you know, highest highs. I want to revisit that track a bit later on. But without sounding corny, I'd like to start at the beginning, start in Scotland. Um, Salt Coats, 
I'd never heard of the place, but, you know, I Googled it and went, wow, okay, that's that's where you were born, and I believe you were there till about 14. Yeah. Tell us about growing up in salt coats. Well, for me, it was quite idyllic, really, because I was close to the water. It wasn't the ocean. You know, it wasn't like going down the surf in Australia, but um, it was nice water, and uh, it was beautiful. Uh, it was what they called a bed and breakfast town. You know, um, it's where all the tourists from Glasgow used to go for two weeks out of the summer and they would come down to our town and destroy it and then go home. So it was very dependent on tourists. You know, it was a very pretty little place. And um, I spent most of my time at the outdoor swimming pool, which was one of those old fashioned kind of white kind of stone places. And the water was like ridiculously cold. It was freezing, but we didn't care. You know, we just loved it. So we were in there from about... May until, you know, September, until it got too cold to swim in it, you know. And my mother and father had a music shop in the main street of the town. So I grew up from the age of five until I was 14, surrounded, you know, from 1958 until 67, I was in a music shop. So the amount of music that came through, I mean, you're kind of unaware of it at the time or how important that is. But when you look back on it, it was an extraordinary uh, nine years or so to be surrounded by some of the best music that there ever was. So, that, yeah, that's where I grew up. Beautiful. Yeah, it does sound idyllic. Was there any uh, temptation to take up the bagpipes or did you? No, no, I never. I have friends uh, actually in California that who were Australian guys, actually. They were in a band called Brother and they, um, they were three brothers and they played the pipes. They gave me a set of bagpipes, but uh, occasionally... Um, when I go into my storage, my little storage room, I occasionally look at them and go, oh, maybe one day I'll get them and put them together. But, but so far, I have not. <laughs> the closest I came was the recorder in, uh, in Scotland before I left to come to Australia. But no, I don't play the bagpipes. Gotcha. Kind of half of, half of our family hails from Scotland. And my dad went to Scots College in Sydney and he sent us to Scots College in Sydney. And so we sort of grew up with the pipes and drums always blasting through the school. And though I don't sort of look back at school very fondly, I do look back at, th at that music fondly. And uh, some classic experiences with dad, with his mates, with a few too many beers, with the swords on the ground in the living room. You know, yeah, exactly. dancing around the swords with the pipes and drums on the record player blasting, and you're like us kids coming out at four in the morning. Oh, will you turn that off? And it, uh, so they used to use the pipes to scare the English, you know, as well. So it's it's got a history of of um, there's a great old uh, Billy Connolly routine about um, about when the trenches were ten yards apart, you know, and um, they used to go over the top and they'd have a bagpiper with them to scare the Germans, you know, as they were advancing towards the Germans and, and the Germans would just mow them down, you know, till the whole point of the story that Connolly says too is that by the end there was only the bagpiper and one other guy running towards the Germans and he turned around to the piper and says, Could you not play a song they like? <laughs> so uh, how on were you when you picked up a guitar and thought, you know what? this feels right and I'm going to make a go of this as a career. I still haven't made that decision to have a go at it as a career. <laughs> that word career is very, is very strange to me. But um, I did pick it up about the age of 12 and um, I was trying to figure out what chord 
George was playing on the poster on the wall. He was playing a bar chord, like a G chord. And I thought that looked very, very complicated. And I thought, well, if I could only just kind of master that, I think I'll be getting somewhere. But I took uh, lessons from a woman who was about maybe a couple of years older than me. Her name is Alison Bell. And she taught me the guitar. She taught me how to play kind of finger style a little bit. She taught me how to play House of the Rising Sun was the first song she taught me how to play, which is really a great song to play when you first start because it's got a lot of different chords in it, interesting chords, good sounding chords, and you're kind of doing different things. And you're, you're playing the F chord where you have to bar two strings, and that was quite that's quite difficult when you first start. But um, when I learned uh, House of the Rising Sun, uh, I was kind of off and running after that. Wow. Yeah, I tried guitar for a few months in high school, maybe about three months, you know, blowing in the wind, some of those classics, yeah. and wow, I found it incredibly difficult, didn't have the patience, and, and that was it for, for me as a musician, yeah. but uh, I guess it was enough to appreciate and admire and, in fact, kind of be in awe of anyone who is really good at it, and I still am to this day. Um, yeah, so am I. I, I I'm in awe of really great guitar players too you know i always take lessons i still take lessons from different people and and then there's a, a lot of stuff online as well so i'm taking lessons at the moment through this website called um true fire a lot of different teachers on that so that's pretty cool when you're about a downtime just to kind of take a few lessons from people like that it's good Wow, that's really cool. That's amazing that after, you know, hundreds of incredible songs that you're still taking lessons and, and still seeking to improve. That's beautiful. Well, it puts your brain into a different place from writing a song. It just puts your brain into kind of like, well, I have to practice this scale or I have to figure out, you know, what's in this chord and, you know, thinking about different things. It's not, not so much thinking about in a mathematical way or anything, but just putting things together in your head, practicing them. Um, I find it quite meditative and, and um, inspiring in, in many ways. And just I look at different guitarists and what they, what they can do. It's one of those great instruments where, you know, you spend your whole life just scratching the surface about what you can do with it. So I, I, um, I like doing that. And then what happens then is that when you practice a little bit and you get in some kind of zone, it's good for your creativity because it takes you out of what you normally would just play yourself because you, your brain's kind of lazy. It just wants you to do things that it knows, you know, or do that, just do that because I know how to do that, you know, and you end up just playing the same thing all the time, you know, and it's a bit boring. And so when you practice different things and you get lessons from other people and, and it doesn't have to be complicated. I always go back right back to basics and relearn things that I should have learned when I was 14 or 15 years old, you know. But it takes you into a different place, and then sometimes it's just very good because you it opens a door for you sometimes, and then sometimes you you find yourself just writing something that perhaps uh, wouldn't have um, if you hadn't have learned that particular chord. You know, that's a cool insight. I found it interesting watching just over the last week, as I knew this was coming up. I've watched different performances of some of your songs and noticed how much you change, even if it's just you playing it acoustically on the guitar. I've noticed yeah. quite a range of how you will play a song, even if it's just you on the guitar. And is that probably part of what you're talking about? It sort of opens up a new interpretation. Yeah, it's not a conscious thing either that, you know, it's just sometimes it's not a, because it's a Tuesday, you know, and you think, oh, well, you just play something a particular way because um, who knows why, you know, it seems to me, it just seems like the same song. 
But people say that all the time to me. Oh, that's a great version. I go, oh, I thought it was the same version. Oh, no, no, it's really different. And I go, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was unaware of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's cool. I mean, I guess it's like a great actor and I actually put you in that category as well. I've, I've loved your acting from the first time I, first time I saw you was in Cozzy and I, I mm-hmm. loved the film and you were wonderful in it. Um, but I can see that in your acting as well. It's kind of like, you know, whatever you've turned up with that's going on in your life that day, you just put it into that performance and it, it doesn't look really contrived and premeditated. And that's the kind of acting I like. Well, I really, I, I went, when I first came to Los Angeles, I went and took acting classes for a couple of years from a guy called Harry Master George. He was a brilliant teacher and he, he taught in a brilliant way. And, and I loved what he used to, the way he used to talk. He'd say, look, you're just, you're just pretending, for one thing. You're pretending to be somebody else. And the conditions and circumstances of your character, it's all there on the page. You know, you can read about who you're supposed to be and so forth. But at the end of the day, it's not about you at all. You're a zero. It's not you. There's no separation. You just have to pretend to be somebody else. And I just really loved that because then it wasn't about trying to um, take something from your own life and put it into this character. It had nothing to do with that. And I just found that it was almost like a relief. You know, you go, oh, great. I, j- I can just get out of my own way. I don't have to delve into the depths of, you know, of what I've gone through. It's got nothing to do with me. It has to do with this person. And that's where the work comes in, you know, where you have to actually uh, create the illusion of being someone else. And there's, there's a lot of good actors, but there's not really a lot of great actors where when you're watching them, you don't see the actor. You see who they're playing before you see them, you know. Anthony Hopkins is like that. And, there's, you know, there's quite a few others, but he springs to mind. Meryl Streep also is like that. There's, there are truly, truly a few actors that just kind of really transcend that. And then there's a lot of other people as well, you know. But I... I you know, I, I don't consider myself certainly by any stretch to be an actor. I, I'd love to do more, but I don't get asked. I have an agent who never calls me and I never really call him, you know. But uh, and, and the things that I have gotten, I've been really, uh, I've loved to do it. And I've learned a lot. But the lessons that I learned was really just kind of respecting the character and trying to um, just become that, whoever it happened to be, you know. Get out of your own way. Yeah, I mean, you can apply that to almost any endeavor can't you get out of your own way yeah. <laughs> i love That's that right. and you'll probably do better yeah i also like the uh hi celia hello it's nice to see you i saw you perform a few times back in la i can't remember the name of the club a few times you were wonderful I know Aww. it was a key club. The key, key club, club. Yeah. key club on Aww, Sunset. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, was- lovely memories. I brought some tea for the man. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> lovely to see you. You too. Thank you. Bye bye. Sure. Yeah, I love the let's pretend part. Like I think that's key. Having you know directed a lot of actors and a lot of things over the years. Often it's overly complicated and just, the, yeah, yeah. you know, those ones that can go, hey, this is like, let's pretend, let's just simplify it all and just give that a go before we get really complicated with all these other things. Um, if you take all those other things on after three or four weeks, you're going to be exhausted. Like you need, <laughs> you need to find an easier way getting in and out of this performance. Uh, wow, mate. Um, yeah, that was lovely seeing, seeing Celia. That was – I was – Cecilia, my ba- say that again it's actually cecilia cecilia sorry mate um That's all right. yeah i was trying to um 
was racking my brain trying to remember the name of the club. And, um, yeah, Kate and I went along a couple of times and that was just like, it was like stepping into, I don't know, another world. (laughs) It was a a particular time that um, with her band Wild Clams and it it was when they were probably peaking in their power and their she had some of the best musicians in the world playing with her and she was the band leader that she was the governor you know and um she ran it so well and it was uh, it was a beautiful few years there where and she got signed to epic but they didn't really know what to do with her uh, particularly you know so uh, that record never really came out and but uh the live shows were extraordinary absolutely extraordinary yeah i mean i wouldn't even know how to describe it so um like latin salsa mixed with funk and um uh, it's really unique uh, style of music. Yeah, no, it was. Her energy in a, on stage reminded me of my wife, Kate, as well. Exactly, yeah, you exactly. Know, just kind mm-hmm. of like swept you up and the ability to yeah. take you wherever they were going and you walk exactly. out of there. Exactly, and there's a, an effortlessness about it as well. That's just inside them, you know. Yeah. It must be uh, lovely having that in your life, <laughs> on a, on that energy on a day-to-day basis. It is. Well, you know, we, we, you know, we sure have our quiet moments, you know, but it is there. There's an inner fire there, which is, which is always burning. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> no, I can totally relate to that. Uh, yeah. I've really enjoyed looking at the videos where you guys are performing in some of the more recent music videos in the backyard. There's the dog, yeah. you two. It's yeah. like, okay, let's kind of just keep this video Do simple. <laughs> and, um, reminds me of my house. Very cool. Hey, um, I'm going to play a few songs today. I've picked a couple of favourites. Is that okay? Sure. Okay, good. Now, something that became clear to me as I've been listening to a lot of your work over the last few weeks is I have a habit of crying <laughs> listening to a lot of your, right. lot of your songs. There, um, there's a depth that resonates, and even if I, it might start, and I'm like, oh yeah, this has got a whimsical kind of melody, and then suddenly by the end, I'm in tears. I, I don't know how or why, but there's something really potent in your songwriting, or, or perhaps the tone of your voice that just really moves me. So, I think I have a natural state of, um, I think my my natural state is quite melancholic, you know, with occasional bouts of hopefulness, you know. But yeah, it's kind of like a, you know, there's a a reservoir of love, if you like, and feeling for everything that's happened to me and before me, you know, whether you think about where you come from, you know, the countries that I've lived in, the the people that I've known, my family, how lucky I was having, you know, parents that I did. And um, so I, I still get swept up in all that and then just swept up in what's happened to me since I've come here too, to live in the last, well, I've lived in this place for 30 years. I came here for a few weeks in 89 to make a record. And then I went back to Melbourne for a minute and then thought, there's not really anything here for me at the moment. Everything was pointing away from there for me at that particular time. So I came here and it was a very welcoming place. So I'm still here. But um, I think that the... Uh, the melancholy or the tears or that kind of tearful aspect or the mournful kind of yearning kind of feeling you get from a lot of the tunes maybe has a lot to do with uh, addiction as well, you know, or, or it seems to go along with that. Just that it's it's like a gratefulness or something for just having managed to not be overcome by that. You know, in the in the 80s, especially in the late 80s, alcohol was really the thing that, that was my demon and and then of course it would open the doors to other things but mainly alcohol 
Australia or Melbourne in particular was a very difficult place to stop, you know, so I thought, well, I'll come here. And geography doesn't cure addiction, but it can help if you already kind of want to change or if you actually want to change the situation you're in. It can really help because you're not walking in your old footsteps all the time, you know. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Having lived in LA, I actually found a similar thing as far as it was a lot easier not to drink living in LA and working in LA than it was in Australia. Like it was very hard to go to a meeting and not have a beer at that time in Australia for me as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big drinking country, you know, and there's no way around that. (laughs) You know, it just is. People drink a lot. And uh, I think it it, um, got to me after a while, you know. Yeah. Mate, thanks for sharing that. The song we're going to play now is yeah. Waiting for My Real Life to Begin, which was from your 2000 album, Going Somewhere. What a powerful song. And in 2020, particularly, it resonated with me. I think we're all this year in, yeah. in that place with that feeling of like, okay, am I going to get to fulfill my dreams? Is this the end? Is it a new beginning? It feels like a, a song for 2020, but clearly it was a song for 2000 as well. Do you want to just give us an insight into that? I wrote it in 1993, and I was sitting actually in this spot where I'm sitting now, pretty much exactly the spot. I used to have my studio up here, and I was working with a friend of mine, a guy called Tom Mooney, a drummer, and he was coming over, and we're going to work on some ideas, and he came in, and I said, how are you doing, Tom? He said, oh, you know, man, I'm, I'm just waiting for my real life to begin. And I thought, oh, that's cool. That's an interesting turn of phrase. And then I just thought about that, and I thought to myself, that's what I'd been doing since 1991. I'd been, um, I was dropped by MCA Records and I didn't really have a, I had no record company that was interested. I didn't have any managers or agents or anything like that. There was nobody interested really at all in anything that I was doing uh, musically. But I thought that, oh, someone was going to come and knock on the door, you know, and that was a point when he said that. And I, then I just wrote the song out. I wrote, you know, in the next like 45, 50 minutes, I just wrote the words out and, and that was it. You know, it was done. And then I kind of, I messed around with the with the chords and found the music to it. But the actual lyrics was, was the thing that came first in that song. But, you know, it was like he opened the door. Tom came in and said, well, I'm waiting for my real life to begin. And then, oh, there you go. There's the song. And it was really about that idea of that we all have that we're either looking behind us or we're looking in front of us. Next week, it will be fine. You know, and it can be all kinds of things. It can be if you gamble or if I can just make that big score, you know, and we all seem to focus on past events or imagine future events. And uh, a lot of the time we spend ignoring, it's a cliche really, but we spend a lot of time ignoring where we are in this very moment. We don't take care of that. You know, we're not mindful. A lot of the things that get me through the day or that keep me happy, if you like, they're all really small things. Like, for example, you know, uh, there's a song I have which is about drinking tea. And a lot of it has to do with ritual. A lot of it has to do with establishing new rituals because of the fact that I used to have none or I used to get so fucked up. Uh, There was a lot of time got spent doing that. So if you're not doing that anymore, you've got to actually, okay, how am I going to fill my day? in a meaningful way, you know? And so a lot of people do this and I would do it as well. We, sometimes you run around madly in a chaotic way and some people get a lot done like that, but sometimes you don't. And so I just think, well, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this 
you know, whatever it is, I'm going to try and do it as well as I can. And then I'll do this other thing, you know. And But with that song, I thought, well, I'm just sitting around waiting to be discovered, if you like. And I thought, that's just not going to happen. You know, I'm going to have to go out. I'm going to have to leave the house and go on the road and find my audience again. You know, And when I decided that I was going to do that, it was amazing because I just thought, well, okay, I'm starting again. It wasn't like Men at Work hadn't happened, but I couldn't rely on that because it wasn't that. It was something else entirely. No one really knew my name, so I would go on the road. And this is not for just a couple of months or something. This is for like 12, 13 years before I even got signed by a label or we started working with a label who could distribute my material. And I mean, I made records, but I mean, I was putting them out, which meant that they were very inefficiently distributed. You know, I would go down to the post office and send CDs to people who ordered them from me. I would just do it all myself, you know. And this is for like, you know, a long time, 12, 13 years of doing that, of constantly going out on the road. But it was the only thing that really kept me sane. And it was the only thing that I could do. You know, I thought, well, I can I can do this. And I have something which seems to resonate with people because I would play songs. And I didn't want to tell jokes and be, you know, a comedian and stuff. But I would tell them something that had happened to me. I would, for example, I would say, isn't this weird about the fact that only a very short number of years ago, I was playing to 150,000 people. And I can count the people who are watching me now, you know, on less than two hands or four hands, you know, sometimes there'd be 35, 40 people, you know. But I think about that now and I would then I would go back and then there'd be 100 people and then there'd be a few more. So it's taken a couple of decades or 25 years or something like that to get it to the point where I can put maybe a thousand people into a room. But it's all just simply been because I've taken it like that idea of one audience at a time. Okay, I'm just going to play to this audience tonight. I'm not going to think about where I'm going to get to. I'm not going to have goals. I'm not going to think, oh, if only I could play at this festival, or if only this or if only that. I would just simply play to the audience that was in front of me. And um, that's still basically what I do. Wow, that's astonishing. I'm going to play the song now, Waiting for My Real Life to Begin. Waiting for my real life 
See you very long. 
that song. Oh my god. <laughs> Honestly, I was driving and I had to pull over on the side of the road. By the time it sort of got to the end where you were, those moments of falsetto were in your upper register there, and I just oh, exploded with kind of grief. I had to pull over and, and um, collect myself for a minute. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I get more than a few people who tell me that they've had to pull over. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a lot of people write to me and they say, I had to pull over. Wow. Yeah. Wow. In incredible. <laughs> Mate, what we were talking about prior to that, I mean, kind of blows my mind that, you know, you you won a Grammy Award for Best New Artist for the first Men at Work album. You sold, I think, over 6 million records. It was number one for, I don't know, how many weeks? 10, 12 or? 15 weeks. I think 15 or 16. It was Michael Jackson knocked us off the top. And he came out with a Thriller. 15 weeks at number one yeah, when you think in the Nowadays, US. it's ridiculous because it was just never, it was like, that's four months. Yeah. Just, it's, it's, it's arrogant. It, it was ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, it's ridiculous. You're the lead singer. You're the principal songwriter. I guess most of the interviews and promotion, you know, you were front and centre. It seems astonishing to me that I guess... You just went you, away. Yeah, you fell off the precipice after that. When I mean, it's not like you were a contrived kind of pop act and it was all about the hair and makeup or something. I mean, you're, you know, writing the songs, though, great songs. I mean, yeah. it's just it's just incredible um, that... Well, I was very lucky in, in, in a lot of ways uh, because um, I had money to buy food. You know, I didn't have to go and get another job like a lot of people have to and who are musicians and sometimes they find that they have to... I don't know, do all kinds of things. You know, in the last 40 years, I haven't had that issue. So I'm really still, you know, way ahead of the game when you really think about that. And that's what I like to try and do. You know, you have to weigh everything up as much as you can and try and have that sense of gratitude for the fact that you don't have to go out and get another job. You know, that even if I'm not selling millions of records anymore, I know that there's people that really, they love what I do with a passion and they would be very upset if I stopped. You know, and, and I and that, that's how it all started again. You know, and so yeah. they've given me a lot of nourishment over the years. But I was lucky in the sense that you know, when I came to Los Angeles, it was like starting again, and it was almost like I'd been on this kind of path before Men at Work, which was kind of it was a bit more solitary. You know, it was just I was writing songs, I was playing songs, I always played solo. I didn't have a band, and then I met Ron, who was the other guitar player in Men at Work, and he was so inspirational. He played this beautiful twelve-string guitar. And he just kind of blew me away that I just said, oh, I want to play with you. I want to work with you. So he was the really important guy in that sense. And then we started working as an acoustic duo. And then when the band happened, Jerry came and started playing with us. And then I asked Greg to come and play with us. And, and so then it felt like a band. And then Ron was originally playing bass. He went to guitar and, and we got John Reese. And so then the band was what it was. But that was really the, the punctuation mark as opposed to, you know, what I'd been doing for years. That was like, oh, all of a sudden I'm in this band and two years later it hit, boom, so big. And then after it was over, it was like, I just come oh, that was a bit of a wild ride. Now I can kind of get back to what I was doing before that. 
you know. Wow. That was almost the line that was established before it. And the men at work thing was just this thing that just kind of went oh, and exploded. And then it just kind of went away. It's just, it's out of control. It, it must be like looking back, wondering whether it was a dream at, yeah. at this point. And that's why you can never have that as a yardstick because you think that that kind of thing only happens once in your life, you know. And still, nobody still really knows, or a few people do. But what happened to us was so phenomenal, you know, that it just doesn't happen to hardly any bands in, 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 from anywhere, but let alone from from where we're from, because um, it's so difficult to cut through. But at that particular time, there are things that happen in your life where I remember this happened when I started working with Ron and we started playing. And we started to generate this live audience, as only can happen in Australia, where you develop this this kind of live audience. And they, they kind of, in a way, it's like you're in this kind of secret society or something. And they know what you're trying to do. And they just come along every Thursday. And that's what they do. They come along every Thursday and they have a few drinks and they kind of stand and they're kind of swaying and they're going, yeah, hey, mate, I... Oh, no, mate, I'm with you, I'm with you, mate, I'm with you. You know, and then they go home and then you go away and you come back. And over the course of a couple of years, you know, I remember we did this tour in 81 before we were famous and we went up the east coast of Australia and all these audiences came along and it was like they knew what was going to happen. You know, so it was like they all wanted to come. And that was the most exciting part because it was when you're in ascension, you know, that's the most exciting part of anything. It's when you're on your way. Once you arrive, you go, okay, well, here we are. But that was the most exciting time for my old band. Um, well, I don't remember what you were talking about. Um, well, it was mostly just how, how astonishing that you could have been that big globally and how quickly it kind of petered out, I guess you could say. Do you remember what you said at the time when you received the Grammy? Yeah, I said, we are the men and we'll see you again. I should have said, we are the men and you're not going to hear from us for quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe never. You never know. Uh, I still think the best is yet to come. Oh, I love it. Hey, I Googled to see who else was nominated that year, and it was um, Asia. I barely yeah. remember them. Uh, Jennifer Holiday, mm-hmm. never heard of her. The Human League, who I was a big fan of at the time, and Stray yeah. Cats. Yeah. Some, um, you know. some. We did some, I- we get some shows with Stray Cats. Brian Seltzer's, a, you know, he's a, he's a monster guitar player. Yeah. Monster Still going strong. Yeah. And more than 30 million albums sold by Men at Work worldwide. That's just surreal. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, so I know what I was trying to say before when we were talking. There's times in your life where you feel like you're just, you're creating things and you're making things happen, but you're also kind of, you're coasting as well. You're kind of riding this other thing. It's like just trying to stay on the board. Something else is happening. You think, wow. All I really need to do is not mess this up. If a light turns on, I need to just step into it. That's all I need to do, you know, because it's going to turn on in a minute, I know. And I'm just going to keep going in this straight line and not deviate. And that's what happens. It's a it's a universal thing. It's you kind of think to yourself, I'm it took me a while to learn this lesson really, but you're you have a part, you're connected to the universe, you know. Whereas before, when I was a drinking person, you know. I wasn't connected. I was disconnected from things. I was disconnected from myself. But at the same time, I knew what was going to happen to us. I knew what happened to us was going to happen. 
you know, I just felt it right from when they first started. I know where this is going. You know, it's going to happen. You know, it's just a matter of just keeping going in this line. And it did. You know, it was extraordinary. You know, I remember when we were traveling in the United States and we were number three, we're opening up for Fleetwood Mac and we're playing to 20,000 people every night. And we play Who Can It Be Now is the last song. And people went nuts and they were ready for something like us, which was a band from a place that people weren't even really sure where it was or, or anything like that. Uh, but then we we went on Saturday Night Live and people loved us there and we went to number one. And then it was just, I remember thinking, this was in the dream, you know. I mean, it wasn't like a literal that I had a dream about it, but I just kind of all the time felt that this was the path that we were on, you know. It's a, it's a curious thing. You can do the same thing. Like, you know, sometimes you think if I make a record and I think, well, this is the best record that I've ever made. It really is. And, and it just doesn't get noticed. And you think, well, okay, well, you know, you have to be okay with that. Because otherwise you'll go mad. Or that's the way I feel anyway, you know, because you won't top that. Or if you're trying to top it, then it's a very dangerous thing to try and do. You know, I remember that song, I Just Don't Think I'll Ever Get Over You, is a song I wrote in 1997 or something it was. And I thought, well, that'd be great. I think that's a good song. It'd be good if people heard that song. But of course, nobody did. For like 10 years or nine years or something, nobody heard it. And that young boy, Zach, oh, he's... Not, not that young anymore, but he was young then. You know, he was he'd come along and see me play sometimes at Largo, and um, and he loved that song. And then he got famous and was making a movie and put it in the film. And so, like ten years later, it gets discovered. You know, and it's on a soundtrack that goes platinum. And you think, okay, well, you know, just uh, be patient and don't worry about it. You know, it's it just just create things and give them life, and you know, and take them out and give them a wee polish now and again. That's beautiful advice. I love that. Love it. And, yeah, good segue to Zach. Love that film, The Garden State. Um, very special, and, and the track was sensational. Um, that kind of led to appearing in Scrubs and, uh, you know, other bits and pieces later. How was that experience? Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, you know what the telly's like. You go there and hang around and try and not eat too many sweet things. And... Um, You'll go and do your thing for half an hour and then go home. Or if you have to do it again, you hang around for another couple of hours while they relight something and then you do it again, you know. But it was, it was, it was a nice thing to do. And I liked this show because it was, it, was, uh, it was both popular and kind of culty and kind of cool at the same time. And um, it was fantastic for me because it not only increased my audience, my live audience, but it also, you know, brought the average age down by 20 or 30 years as well. Yeah. I saw you at Largo a few times when we were living in LA, and uh, old Largo, right? Yeah, the old Largo. Yeah, back yeah. in uh, uh, it was kind of, yeah, yeah. Um, mm. Before I'd seen you in that setting, I never realised how funny you were when you were doing your solo shows. And um, mm. I mean, you know, if you stopped singing, you could be a stand-up comedian. Not that it's what you want to do, but yeah, I mean, you're a funny dude. Well, it also goes hand in hand with when I came here and, and meeting Flanagan that owns Largo and still does, and he's an Irish guy. And so we connected on just on a geographical thing of where we're from and, um, you know, why we're here and the, the lunacy of Los Angeles, you know, and how silly it is, you know. Uh, but it's brilliant at the same time. It's just fantastic, you know. So he was more than happy to have me play there whenever I want. And, you know, and that's still the case, although it's closed down at the moment. But so there's an idea. Okay, there's a 300-seat theatre that I know if I play, I can fill that, you know. It's not 
300,000 people. It's not stadiums. It's not any of that. It's just like 300 people, which is quite a lot of people. It's At hard, the end to, of the it's day, hard to I get think people it's, out. Sorry to interrupt. It's hard to get people out to see shows in LA. Right. I know that I know I can fill that room a couple of times whenever I want to. So I go, that's like a point where you spring from. It's also a point where you pull back to, you know, it's, it's just there, you know. And whenever I go and play, you know, whenever I used to play the old Largo, it was a great thing. It was a beautiful thing, not only playing. And I saw I do the show. Remember, there's no backstage. You would have to go either through the crowd to, to go up through the kitchen, up to the wee room upstage, the backstage room, which was above the kitchen. Or else you could just walk out at the front of the club and walk right around the whole block up through all, past all these shops and round the back and down the alley. So me and Flanagan would do that. Every single time I'd play there, I'd walk out the front door. He would walk with me. And we would just walk past all this madness of Fairfax, going past this you know Russian wedding place and some other stores and stuff. And we would just talk uh, about whatever about, about the show or about other things or he would say oh you you know you never guess who's in the who's in the crowd blah 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 and you walk around the alley and that was just our little ritual that we did for you know 20 years or something and i just loved it you know and that's what your life is your life is made up of all these brilliant moments you know and they can be incredibly simple you know but if you pay attention to them you know it's just it's full of joy you know that's beautiful. As you're saying it, it uh, occurs to me that what I think of probably more than anything when I listen to your music is it gets me thinking about the meaning of life and what, you, what you're communicating right there is aligns with that. It's like, okay, find a way of enjoying these little things, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because it's, you know, yourself. I mean, I'm 67 and I came here. I was, yeah, I was like 38 years old or something like that, you know. But I can remember the last 20 or 30 years so vividly. I mean, they've gone incredibly quickly. So no matter which way you look at it, you know, you think I'm in the last trimester, you know. I'm kind of going, okay, well, you know, if I've got another 20 years of walking around, that's pretty good. But 20 years is not that long because I remember the last 20 years, you know. it's I remember it just going by in a flash, you know. You know, you have to get as much as you can out of every day, you know. Absolutely. You know, we, we inherited this dog. We've had this dog for the last few months, uh, Rico. And I just take him to the beach and that's his favourite thing to do. And uh, throw the ball constantly. That's that's his thing. He's just obsessed with it. Swims in the ocean and I swim in the ocean and there's nobody there. There's maybe like three or four people on the beach, you know, and it doesn't get any better than that, you know. It's just taking the dog for a walk and throwing the ball and going for a swim in the, swim in the ocean. Brilliant. <laughs> I love it. Can totally relate to that. With, with the mask on, you know. <laughs> Take the mask off, you're going to water. Uh, the next song I want to play is Now and the Evermore, which is uh, yeah. a good fit for what we're talking about. Yeah. That has that whimsical nature, but it certainly has the melancholy aspect yeah. to it, and it gets me thinking of, you know, the spiritual domain, where we're going, where we've been, all of mm. those those big questions. Beautiful song. Do you want to uh, let us know how that came to be? Um, well, you know, I'm trying to think of, of it. It really was at the start of the pandemic. First of all, I had that music for the song for years and years and years and years, but was never able to put any anything that I liked to it lyrically, you know, and then it just it happened a few months ago. I think it just coincided with the with the fact that, um, you know, that really all is about, you know, the, the present moment and who you're with and who you're in that room with, especially when you can't go into any other room, you can't do any of the things you're supposed to do. It just turns everything inside. 
So you, you start to think about things that are within as opposed to things that are, you know, without, outside yourself. And I think that's what was on my mind at that time of just um, trying to, uh, you know, just let as much as you can have resonance, you know, also without forcing it too much. You know, it's, it's like that word let, you know, or, or, or getting out of your own way. It's, it's all that same thing of just kind of, you know, of just trying to, to be in the moment as much as you possibly can, you know. Sounds, sounds good. I think about mortality a lot when I listen to a lot of your songs as well. Is that, <laughs> is that something you find you're thinking more about as time goes on? Oh, yeah, but I've always thought about it. You know, even when I was young, I, would, you know, I was going, like, when day I'm going to die? And it was like, oh, I used to f- it didn't freak me out, but it was something which was like, that was awful. You know, and then when I would think about my parents going, you know, that was the worst. I just thought, oh, I'm not going to cope at all when they go because it was such a fantastic family to grow up in, you know, and the things we did, like having the shop. It was always just the five of us and my grandmother as well, but, but my, and my brother and sister, my mother and father. But, you know, doing that momentous thing of coming to another country thousands of miles away and um, an immigrant and there was lots of other immigrants there as well. Like there was lots of Italian guys and Greek guys and they got a hard time. And I always, I always hated that about there's something about the, there is this you know harshness of the Australian psyche, which kind of thinks that, you know, belittling people is funny or that it's, oh, it's just because I like you, mate. You know, it was something that I really, I, I, I didn't suffer that much, you know, because I spoke English, I spoke with a Scottish accent, but very quickly I kind of learned how to speak like an Australian bloke just to assimilate, you know, not get into any fights, you know, but it was something that I just, when I would go home to my parents, I would start speaking like this all the time. So I always had two accents. I had one at home and I'd go out and I'd be like an Australian bloke, you know, and it was just a, it was an unconscious thing. But yeah, so when we arrived in Australia, um, it was just really our family. I found that it brought us closer in a way because my parents didn't really know any more about Australia than we did. So we would be sitting there and they would go, well, what, you know, they would, they would ask us about what something was. And, uh, and that was a weird thing for you to have your parents ask you something, you know, that you might know and they might not know, you know. So that was a kind of a curious thing. We were in this strange land together, you know. But uh, no, I've always thought about death, mortality. Um, I don't think in a really morbid, horrendous way, but it's just it's just always there on your shoulder, you know. Do you have a sense that you're a spiritual entity and that you will live again, or is that not in your sort of realm of perception? Well, it might not be in my realm of perception. I mean, I don't really... I, I don't know. I really don't know. I'm not, I don't really know what happens um, when you go. So we all get to, you know, we all, we all get to find out or not. You know, sometimes, sometimes I think the curtains just close and that's it. And, uh, that, and that's fine. But, you know, I'm not, I don't see, um, I don't see the sense in religion. I never have. Um, it doesn't speak to me. It doesn't ring true. It, it seems to me to be you know, made up by guys to cope with the unknowable. <laughs> but um, but I don't know, you know. And, and the, other, the other thing is that, you know, because I'm an alcoholic, I kind of have this sense of God, but it's within me and, it's, and it's, it is everywhere. You know, God is everywhere. It's, it's just everywhere, you know. And um, so it's not something that's outside yourself. It's not an abstract you know, guy that's up there making judgments on everybody. I don't buy that for a second, you know. But at the same time, 
on a you know molecular level, you're just going to think, wow, look at that tree. You know, the world is astonishing. You know, and everyone's running, scurrying around, killing each other, and it's just madness. It's just madness. Most of the world is run by, you know, mad people, and there's only a few of them. You know, you think about that. You think about President Xi of, of China. He runs one in seven people walking on the planet. You know, that's a that's a big gig he's got. You know, you're absolutely right. <laughs> you're absolutely and, right. And, you know, and Vlad. You know, Vlad. Vlad the lad. He's like. My God, he's like a, he's, he's something else, that guy. You know, he's unflappable, isn't he? He is. It's uh, very interesting times. I saw that doco, uh, the Oliver Stone interview with him, and wow, that was an eye-opening experience. Did you see it? I saw it a while ago, and, and, and he bought it, didn't he, Oliver? He was seduced by him. It was, it was very, very interesting, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Hey, I realise we haven't played the song. That was a long intro. We went into a deep intro there, but here's Now and the Evermore. Oh, yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Woke up Sunday morning Salvation Army at my door Onward, Christian soldiers, till I couldn't take it anymore. I ran across the graves at night with those three witches at my tail. I heard the wail of the now and the evermore. All things are never equal. And I don't know who is keeping score Nobody gets a sequel, no Everyone gets shown the door I'll be counting on the rising sun To give me all my waking days Until it sets up on the now and the evermore to the life we knew Don't save it till the end It could be me It could be you Or some old long lost friend But if I'm calling out your name I know if you can hear me You will come saw the lady Katrina She was all a jangling at the bar Playing an Italian concertina You know, she's really quite the star She told me everything's a circle dance And we had been here many times before we're all a part of the now and the evermore Goodbye to the waterside And down 
beautiful song. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. I mean, honestly, it was hard to pick. There's so many songs, um, but uh, so I got like 25 new ones downstairs in the last few months, and uh, it's so exciting because I've had time to experiment with the studio because I've got this really nice space down there, and I've got lots of toys and nice few nice outboard pieces of gear, and so I can experiment a bit sonically as well. You know, usually I've got two or three weeks and I have to go back out on tour. But this, because of the pandemic, I've been able to just sit home and for extended periods of time and just work on ideas and songs and stuff. So it's just been, it's been fantastic. You know, I, almost to the point where I feel guilty about the fact that I'm enjoying myself a bit too much, you know, in this horrendous time. Yeah. Wow, well, that, that's exciting. I, I look forward to hearing the new tunes. Um, before we wrap up, mate, uh, congratulations on the APRA, Global APRA Music Award for Distinguished Services, you know, blah, blah, yeah. blah. But that's a beautiful acknowledgement. And yeah, it, was, it was exciting. Yeah. I, I, I love APRA. I love APRA. They're great. Yeah, cool. And how was that? I think, I think they're the best, you know, those societies, you know. Is that right? Cool. I think the I think they're the best in the world, APRA. Wow. I do. Wow, that's that's great. That's to hear. one of the things that's really they're really unique, I think, and they've got um, they're doing really well, and they're, they're great people to deal with, and they're excited about music, and yeah, I love them. I love the people there and the whole the whole organisation. That that's lovely. Hey, um, that must have been pretty cool with Sia presenting that to you. I was completely shocked that she came up to do that. Yeah. Yeah, that was lovely. Lovely. Yeah. And so you're not, not a blood uncle, no. but you were friends of the family and a you know opinion leader, I guess, to her. And Well, um, I've just noticed since she was about uh, one or, or two years old, I knew her uh, father, Philby. And uh, when I first went to Sydney to make it in 1973, uh, <laughs> I wanted to you know become a rock and roll star. And I went to Sydney and came back to Melbourne with, with my tail between my legs after a few months. But in that time, I met a, a lot of people. And, and Phil, B, Phil Coulson was one of the guys I met. He's a great guitar player and singer. And um, we became friends. And then I went to do a show in Adelaide uh, years later <clears throat> called Ned Kelly. And Phil had moved to Adelaide and worked in a band called Drum Jungle with James Black and a lot of other musicians uh, that, that we both know and love. Um, and anyway, he'd had a little girl and he was, he had, he had a, a wife and, and he had this girl, Sia. And I would just, yeah, see her over the years. And um, as a matter of fact, I was living in, in New York in 87 and uh, Sia was 11. And uh, I'd gone to visit her mother and I said, oh, you know, I'm in New York and, you know, you should come and visit. And I, then I left, not thinking anything about it. And then Sia said to her mother, oh, was he serious? And she said, well, give him a call. So she called me up and she said, you know, um, Uncle Collie, can I come to New York and stay with you? I said, sure, yeah, okay, sure. And she stayed. She came over like for five or six weeks or something. She was 11. Oh, wow. <laughs> I had no parenting skills whatsoever. But so, uh, so she came and hung out and I would just take her, whatever I was doing, I would just take her around and, she was brilliant company, and uh, so that's that's that was that was a real moment where we where we had a connection. You know. Wow, that must be uh, astonishing to see how well she's done. And oh, amazing! Because I mean, speaking of you know becoming tearful, I used to say to her, and uh, where we lived in in, uh, in New York when I was when she was staying there, I say, listen, um, I'm trying to get her to go to bed and clean her room and stuff. I'd say to her, 
you know, if you if you clean your room and have a shower, see ya, you know, you we can watch David Letterman tonight and we'll have Hagen das ice cream and she, oh, that was it. So that was the that was the deal. So, you know, she would do that and clean her room and, and um have a shower and we when we would watch David Letterman we would, and have Hagen das ice cream. So it cuts to just like ten or fifteen years ago when, you know, she was on Letterman. That was because Letterman was her favorite show. So it cuts to ten or fifteen years ago when she's on Letterman and um as she sang a song and Letterman walks over and he just, he says, well, it doesn't really get any better than that. And she was just kind of looking at him and giggling. She looked straight down the camera and I was just like sitting convulsively weeping uh, in the couch in, in Topanga because I kind of knew what that meant, you know. Wow, wow. That's beautiful. Well, mate, I mean, it doesn't get any better than you, I'd have to say. I, I think you're one of the absolute all-time great songwriters and performers and singers. So thank you. My pleasure. It's been a real um, real treat to chat with you today. And I, I know I'm not the only one. I was um, chatting with my wife this morning and I kid you not, she said, uh, yeah, well, I put him up there with John Lennon. Oh. I'm not kidding. And now I'm going to weep. <laughs> it's true. I, um, she wasn't joking. No, you can always tell when your wife is joking, <laughs> you know, which is good. Yeah, no, it's true. And in fact, I'll finish on, on a question she's had, as we were talking about you, she said, he's one of the most authentic out there. I wonder what he does to check himself when he feels he's becoming inauthentic. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good question. That and It's a pretty interesting one too, because it's sometimes tricky to know what your authentic self is, you know, because sometimes you get caught out and you, know, you, you look at yourself in the mirror and you think you're telling yourself the truth. But you're not sure sometimes, you know. But uh, again, I think it's, um, you know, just occupying your space and just having that be enough, you know, and going, well, I'm, I'm, I'm taking up this space. I remember sitting out the back one day and I was, I was, I was off the drink, but I was not long. It was like a few months off the drink. And, uh, and I remember just sitting out the back having, trying to have meditate, you know, and, uh, and I stood up and I just felt my, you know, my feet were on the ground and I, and I raised my hands up and I felt like I could touch the sky. So I, thought, so I felt connected. So that's what I always kind of think, well, if I feel connected, if I feel like I'm, I'm kind of going forward, but I'm kind of at the same time being propelled, then, then I'm okay, you know. That's cool. That's cool. Well, <laughs> thank you for <laughs> occupying your space. Yes, and, very important, very important thing to do. Yeah, and it's over occupy it, or not to you know not to have parts of it out, out for rent. You know, you got to you know you got to occupy everything everything about it. But I think that works best. <laughs> That's great. No, it's uh, it's more than enough. So thank you, mate. Have a great day. All right. See you later. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Collins, that rare combination of deep intellect and pure heart. A troubadour and a man for all people. Now in the Evermore is the first single from Collins' forthcoming album, which is due out early 2021. Head to Collins' website, colinhay.com, to download the track and get the latest news and links. If you're enjoying the podcast, then please subscribe, rate, review, and of course, tell your friends. Or head over to the website, theblankcanvaspodcast.com.au for all the links and information. That's it, guys. Until next week, live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. 
This has been a Milovich production.